education is another big factor. Like we, you know, that how to work. So in all management courses in top-rated universities or whatever, I don't think I might be wrong, but there's nowhere where it's taught how to manage a blended workforce. How do you manage a team of full-time employees, uh, contractors, independent workers, interns? How do you, yeah, how do you, how do you put them all together into one cohesive team? I, I'm not sure that's taught anywhere in any curriculum in any MBA program. So I think. Uh, the next generation of uh, managers, and especially middle managers, will need to will need to come through some kind of formal education with that. My guest on today's episode of the In Factor is Akil Seth. Akil received his Master's of Engineering Science from the University of Oxford where he captained the rowing team, led a sponsorship team for the Oxford Business Review, and rocked the freelance math tutoring scene. Akhil is currently the head of the Open Talent Center of Excellence at UST, an IT services and consulting company. In this role, he's on a mission to revolutionize the gig economy by delivering lightning fast and cost-effective talent solutions for freelancers. He's an open talent enthusiast with a passion for redesigning work. Listen into our conversation as we explore Akhil's insights on the impact and role of technology freelance work in companies of all types and sizes. Kale, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so I'm really excited. I met you through uh, some mutual contacts um, that as I started to explore this uh, this uh, what I was calling the gig economy, but I think I'm going to start calling it the fractional economy or the freelance economy because I think that's probably a better definition of what's going on today. Um, but I'm really excited to learn more about what you're doing. Um, and and uh, I know you've got a background in mathematics, I think. You were a tutor and um, did some things uh, you know, in that space. But now you're working as head of the Open Talent Center of Excellence. So uh, tell us a little bit about what that means and kind of how you got to this. Sure. I'd love to. So Starting with what the Open Talent Center of Excellence is, it's just uh, uh, at UST, which is where I work, we try to bring in as many, uh, we try to engage as many forms of talent as possible to get our work done. There are many ways and engagement models between employer and quote unquote employee and open talent, freelance gig, all, all mean the same thing. It's just one of them. Um, so what we've been building out is the ability to bring freelancers, gig workers, and open talent professionals into UST and have them do UST work. Then asking, answering the other, I mean, that's a, that's a simple one sentence explanation, but mm -hmm. as for how I got here, I think super candidly, completely by accident, like, uh, I don't think any any student or even any anyone, any young professional dreams of being in the human resources, uh, talent planning sphere when they grow up. 
I didn't even know that sphere existed until I started this job. But it was uh, my boss actually is very, uh, very charismatic man called Vinod Karta. And he, uh, we worked together previously at, at an internship that I did and we just clicked. So this is where, and he said, when you graduate, come work, come work with me. I'll give you a real problem and you can just solve it however you want. So he kind of gave me a bit of a blank canvas to do what I wanted within reason build, uh, to build out UST's Open Talent Center of Excellence. So did, did, they, uh, did, did USC already have the, the, the title of this center and the concept in mind, or did you bring all that to the table? I mean, what, what were you handed when, when they gave you this project? That's a good question. So yeah, it wasn't a complete blank canvas. There was definitely, there was a sketch drawing of what this was going to look like. And the center of excellence, like, you know, we'd already decided, sorry, my boss and his peers had already decided that there was to be a center of excellence in place. Um, uh, and so they, they'd put together an organizational structure, but that's, uh, that's evolved a lot from when it was initially designed. Uh, and so it's now, uh, so what was handed to me was, truthfully, access to some of the sharpest minds in the open talent space. We work with Open Assembly very closely, who are experts in this in this field, and they're helping us build out our open talent program. So that's a huge resource that um, that I was given access to, and then just the power and influence that my boss had within the company, like he. And even today at the beginning, sorry, even today, but especially at the beginning, uh, the, the influence and the change making that's required to make this work, that started out from his credibility that he'd built out. So those were the two things that I had access to and was given when I started. What do you think led to this project? I mean, why why did they decide that this was a high priority and important enough to to hire someone like you to to run this and build this? <laughs> um, that's a really good question. So simply, I mean, it all gets tied back to profit at the end of the day. So uh, we we make. The, the UST's business model is basically that we create and build teams that we can then deploy to client sites to get client work done. So we have a lot of avenues through which we gather teams. So we have external hiring. We have our own. We're, we're about 30,000 people now, uh, like full-time employees. And so this was really just meant to be another string to our bow. That was the thinking at the time. And it also came with a lot of um, it was quite innovative, you know, very few of our competitors have done this successfully for their clients and few of our clients have done this successfully for themselves. So this was, um, if we could crack this, this would be what a 1 billion person economy and market that, uh, we, that neither us nor our competitors nor our clients really knew how to leverage. So the size of the opportunity was huge and the, uh, and the return on investment would would be enormous. So, so when was it? When did you when did you first get hired to launch this? Uh, so, I, I actually 
was onboarded about three months after the launch of the open talent strategy. And so this was about two years ago. Okay. So, uh, so did, did the, the, uh, all the environmental changes, the pandemic and the change in, uh, you know, the remote workforce and did, did all of that factor into it? Or was this something that had been in the works for quite a while? It's, um, yeah, no, you know, it, it was, uh, I think even if it, the pandemic definitely helped, right? All these, all these factors really accelerated the acceptance and adoption of the freelance marketplace. But I think truthfully, if I remember correctly, this was in the roadmap even before, uh, the pandemic started. So the pandemic just made, made it more sure, made us more sure that we needed to do something like this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really fascinating. I think when you look at, I think a lot of, a lot of these trends were already set in motion, but, but uh, maybe we didn't all believe until we experienced yeah. it ourselves. And, uh, you know, suddenly, uh, you know, everyone knew how to use some of these, um, you know, these online communication systems and there were people using them you know, before the pandemic, but, um, in, in academics, for example, you know, we, we learned, we were, we had been working with online education for, you know, more than a decade, but, um, you know, all of a sudden we were all teaching online. So it really changed yeah. things a lot. So tell me a little bit about your experience with building out this program, because it's interesting, you know, you're in a space that I want to talk about today, you know, this fractional or, or um, you know, freelance uh, economy space, but you also are an, what we call an entrepreneur. You're building an entrepreneurial or new project within an organization. So Tell us, tell us what that's been like. What have you learned from that? You know, it's funny you asked that. I was just reflecting precisely on a slight mindset shift that I've had quite recently. Uh, I re remember at the start, I was frustrated by all the bureaucracy and all the, uh, all the inertia that you had to overcome to get anything changed at a big company like UST. But I've recently come to the realization that it's important that that be there. Like, it would be very, it, it would be, it could be very destructive if I could come in and in one week change everything about UST. A company this size that's growing like what, 20% every year needs to be doing 90% of the same things year on year. So that, that mindset shift has, um, it's made, I think what it's done is, is it's helped the whole team accept that we need to meet, uh, we need to meet our hiring, uh, our end customers, which are the hiring managers at the end of the day. We need to meet them almost precisely where they're, where they are. Like the, uh, you know, the narrative of, if you come here, we will, like, if you change your practices in this way, then you will receive like great value. That narrative, doesn't work as well as we thought it would. So that's, you know, that's, that's very interesting because like you, as someone who's built, you know, built programs and been somewhat entrepreneurial within a bureaucracy, it has been frustrating and it continues to be frustrating. Uh, on the other hand, it, it 
the the structure and the resources provided are are what makes it possible sometimes to do what you you have you you need to do and i see you nodding and i think that's i think that's a realization that you come to so you kind of have to be what i call a boundary spanner have have one foot in each world or or you know one half of your brain on each side Uh, because if you're not pushing that innovation envelope you're not meeting the the goal of what they're trying to have accomplished but at the same time if you don't if you aren't able to uh, you know, do it within the structure and systems, it's going to fail. So um, it's kind of like working with an investor, uh, you know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're always there and you've got to, you've got to take, you know, you've got to work with them on that. So let's talk a little bit. I'm very curious about what you're learning um, through this process uh, about this whole space. Um, because there, there are, I'm sure a lot of landmines that companies, uh, have to avoid, try to avoid, um, you know, as they're, uh, trying to build out their, their workforce, um, definition, role definition, right. Mm -hmm. Job definition. Is this person actually an independent contractor or are they a work for hire? And, um, you know, I assume there's a lot of issues there. So what kinds of things do you do to help your clients um, kind of move into this space today? Damn, you're really, you got some really good questions. Uh, <laughs> the, I, I say there are two main aspects to bringing a client along. Uh, one is just the usual sets of compliance and security things that they need to, they're not going to budge on, you know, they're not going to say we we're okay with a worker that doesn't have insurance or, you know, this person, it's okay if they work on their personal laptop. Those are some of the things that we've built building out the infrastructure that allows for the freelance economy to come into enterprise is a really big, well, it's the biggest enabler. So, you know, like a security solution for freelancers to um, uh, to work in enterprise environments, along with all the all the business and compliance uh, regulatory structures that individual governing bodies, like in individual states, uh, in individual countries, differ vastly. All of those minute details need to be taken care of before a client will even come to the table. And listen to the idea of having a freelancer come on board. And then after that, it's really just about the experience, which which I know has always been, uh, we've been able to knock out the park. The experience part has been super easy, that, that value proposition. And what I mean by that is how quickly can this person be hired? How relevant are they to the skills that the client wants? These are things we can very quickly demonstrate are, are hypercharged when you're sourcing through the open talent, open talent ecosystems. Um, and so th- the activation energy is pretty high to, for, to bring a client along into, into engaging with you on freelance marketplaces. But once, once they cross that threshold, it really does open a lot of floodgates. So uh, what kinds of what kinds of skills are companies looking for uh, that you know mostly that, that you're working with? 
So the ones that we're working with are mostly with tech skills. So, you know, full stack developers, AI, machine learning experts, cybersecurity, those sorts of things. So, uh, so what about issues? You brought up issues of security, and um, uh, you know, I I know I've I I had someone on my podcast oh some time ago who actually was creating a company to to to, to place Fang engineers into um, you know other kinds of jobs. So so you know I'm an engineer that works at at one of the you know Netflix or or Amazon or Facebook or one of those companies and and somebody else is hiring me. Is, is that that is that a security issue, you know, because I'm working at two uh, companies. Um, you know, you mentioned your private laptop versus a laptop provided, I guess, by the company. And so uh, do companies, <clears throat> how do companies feel about that? You know, if you're working for multiple companies at one time. The general consensus is they don't like it. They don't like <laughs> it. You can imagine. <laughs> but yeah, you have to you have to be independent, right? Which means that right. you you can't be a work for hire, which means that you, you can't take, uh, you know, that, you know, you're, you're independent in the way that you work and you think, and uh, you're not taking all of your guidance from the company, right? Right. So that's a, it's a difficult, and, and all companies that we work with uh, exist on a spectrum with regards to that particular issue. Like at the most lenient end, they're just like, uh, they tell us, we don't actually care who you get to bring on. You take care of that. Just give us the end work product. And there are other companies that want to scrutinize every single hour that uh, one of our resources works on their product. So um, as for what a client wants, it can, it can vary it can vary quite vastly. As for what UST wants as well, we also really don't like it when... Uh, a resource that we're working with is working with one of our competitors or one of our clients' competitors, or even anyone at that. We'd love for them to be working solely with us. And I'm sure every enterprise, if they had their way, their employees would have no other distractions outside, or no other work distractions outside of their occupation with them. And that's still very much the mindset that the individuals um, working with the resource have. So even like we have to we have to spend a bit of time educating the managers themselves. That, you know these these people, they're not they're not employees of UST. You can't treat them. You can't expect them to work the weekends without any pay. Or you know you can't um, you can't just call them at five o'clock in the afternoon and expect them to spontaneously join a call. There's so there's a lot of education about how to manage these resources. And I think that's really the biggest point. The, the, it's the management piece rather than the um, rather than any, like distraction. Like, uh, managers at UST are used to having complete control is the wrong word, but they're easily ease ease of direction over every resource that they're responsible for. Yeah, it's it's it is a really it's it it's a really difficult nut to crack as you talk about it because companies course, companies are struggling, I think, with managing remote workforces, period. And then we're talking about adding on this layer of independent contractors. But um, I'm guessing that the only way you can get certain kinds of talent these days is by entering into this space. I mean, 
it's hard to get. Is that would that be a true statement? Absolutely. Yeah. No, we've 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 seen cases where we've been working, uh, you know, we've been working to fill roles for months uh, without any success, and then we find that this kind of person, this unicorn that the, that the manager is looking for, exists as an independent contractor on open talent marketplace. So. Uh, yeah, you're exactly right. Like without embracing this idea, the talent doesn't exist. Yeah, and that's that. Therein lies, I'm sure, a lot of the motive for UST to go down this route, right? Because yes. that's what you've got to do. That's what you've got to do. So, um, so I study, as you know, we've talked earlier, entrepreneurial mindset and the way that people work and think. And I'm curious with the, with the folks that you're working with, do you see them as having an entrepreneurial mindset, not the corporations necessarily, but the, the, the workers themselves, um, do, do you, are, are they thinking like entrepreneurs or are they thinking just, a, a, maybe more about, I can make money and have some flexibility and, not have to be tied to one company, um, and 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 you know, ha, ha, or is there even a maybe? Maybe they're all different, so much so different that you can't really classify. <laughs> I guess yeah. The answer is as unhelpful as you can imagine. It is. It's they are all completely different. I'm trying to think what entrepreneurial traits I've seen in some of in some of the examples that I've been a bit closer to. I. I think obviously the fact that I think the, the, the big difference I'd say between uh, between uh, open talent resources versus full-time employees is that open ta- all open talent resources have to know how to sell, which a lot of our employees, they only have to do once every two or three years or five years when they're switching jobs, whereas an open talent resource has to do that pretty much every day to earn new business. So that's a skill which is transferable that I think they, they exhibit a lot more acutely than, uh, an, an, that's an entrepreneurial skill, I'd say. Mm-hmm. That they, mm-hmm. they, yeah, they exhibit a lot more acutely than a counterpart in a full-time job would. So, so when you think about these um, these independent contractors that you work with, do you see, you know, what kinds of challenges do you see or hear about them facing? I mean, uh, you know, not everybody can sell, and especially when you're talking about somebody in tech, sometimes they're they're <laughs> that's not their forte. Not everyone, but but you know that 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 might be an area where uh, you know you that. The human connection, um, you know, is not as high a priority sometimes as the connection to technology. Um, so, so what are some of the challenges that you see for these these workers? Uh, so, looking at the data, it's you can easily see that you know the Pareto distribution, the eighty twenty rule. With there's that that very much applies to the freelance space. If if not more disproportionately like um i'm sure if you on most talent marketplaces you'll see that there there's a very like i'm just iterating the point but there's a very small handful of open talent professionals who are winning the majority of the business across all the demand across all the enterprise so that's 
a difficult it's it, the barrier to entry is very difficult as uh, a new freelancer trying to make your way on on a new marketplace other than that i'd say the main challenge is uh, I, I mean i've heard horror not horror stories but unfortunate stories of you know freelancers doing the work and then just not getting paid um you know they're always feeling like an outsider i feel like the human i'm sure the human aspect of working in a team is lost with a lot of freelancers uh, and often to win business uh, they will have to do a lot of work up front before their first paycheck so like the pre-sales period for a freelancer can often be prohibitively long mm-hmm a lot like an entrepreneur or a startup, really. You've got to, right. you know, it, it's it's interesting because I think you're talking about building a product, which is you basically, and your brand, and and being able to withstand the the slow, you know, the the starvation time of the early years, right? <laughs> or the hopefully not right. years, but of the early <laughs> early months. Let's hope, um, you know, but. But um, and I, I guess you mentioned earlier that um, most of these freelancers have to have all their own insurance, right? Um, they uh, they have to be um, you know they have to provide a lot of things that a corporate environment typically provides. That's right. Yeah, and without and they have to do that before they have any business. Yeah, so they're taking a risk, which is another entrepreneurial. Uh, you know, aspect of entrepreneurship, really. Um, And, but, but one of the things that's reducing the risk is projects like yours, and also some of the other companies out there that provide platforms for uh, people who want to work in, in jobs. So for somebody who's interested in this space, you know, what, what are some of the places they need to look? Um, You know, I mean, how do you get started in, in something like this? You mean, how do you get started as a freelance work? Worker? Yeah, as a freelance worker. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, it's uh, another good question. I, you know, I haven't spent as much time as I would like thinking about that. Because I've mostly been focused on how can we get these people who are ready to work actually deployed somewhere in UST or to a client account. But if I'm thinking just off the cuff, like what, uh, what I would as an enterprise user of a freelance service, what I would want to see is uh, basically, can you handle a client? Communication, I think, is the biggest biggest sales device. Um, And I've often found that building up, uh, having references and having a, a solid reputation that you can inherit from whatever previously you've been working on is paramount to even getting getting yourself considered so i guess the answer is already be brilliant and and have enough evidence to showcase that to stand out from the crowd yeah yeah i mean it it's uh you know you got to get that first uh that first gig, I guess we could call it, um, and, and try to get some, um, 
references and demonstrate that you can provide value, right? I mean, which is, you know, what you do as an entrepreneur. So as we talk, it sounds like there are more and more, uh, more and more aspects of that. Now, from a company perspective, um, you know, do are most of your clients bigger corporations or do you work with, so yeah. bigger corporations are getting into this space. And, and uh, so I'm curious, um, you know, what, what, how, how are they, you know, how does a company start to think about this? I mean, what, you know, mm. where do they look and how do they get started? Uh, so yeah, these questions are so good. <laughs> <laughs> the, I'd say the, to get started, I think for every company, like the freelance marketplace is going to solve a different purpose. And when we've, and we've especially found that when we've been pitching open talent to some of our clients as well, they, what, what, what's the problem that they need solving, uh, open talent addresses them and can address them in very different ways. And so I think the first thing is to have a very good understanding of what, what problem you're trying to solve with open talent, uh, with open talent as the solution. Like the danger is like you see a hammer and you have a hammer that is open talent and you just go looking for nails to hit. But, um, and then like once the, once you've like clearly identified the problem, it, you know, that, their niche open talent marketplaces and open talent uh, infrastructure that you need to build out specifically for those uh, for those use cases. Like for example, if like us, you're you're heavily dependent on tech workers, you need a roster of open talent marketplaces that have technology talent. And you also need to build in some way of uh, the insurance that you that you 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 should accept that the freelancer doesn't have you need to build that in somehow into your model and what we uh, like one of the things that we pitch a lot is our security solution like how are you going to get these freelancers into your environment do you want to be shipping laptops halfway around the world every time you want to hire a freelancer say in jakarta hopefully not so we, you know, we've developed a VDI solution that is secure, lightweight, and can scale up and down within like 24 hours of our needs. So there are a lot of these enabling, uh, in enablement criteria that need fixing once you've identified precisely which problem you want addressed, and then, and then it becomes of then it becomes a question of slowly opening the tap and helping your organization with the change management and the, the cultural stuff that allows for open talent to propagate. That's, you know, that's really interesting, I think. And, and um, there's so many things I think that I hadn't thought about that, you know, so many factors, so many issues that you would have to consider and um, it's so it's not an easy thing to just decide we're going to move into this space, right? And um, and 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 getting the right people. I mean, it you know, hiring anyone. We all, always, you know, my experience has been I'm always very excited to hire somebody to fill in a space. But then I realize there's training involved and there's onboarding and 
And, uh, you know, and it usually takes a lot more of my time, at least initially, and uh, to get somebody up to speed. You know, it kind of makes me wonder about this whole area of training. So, you know, as an educator, I work with students and, you know, in the past, students go to work for companies and they get a lot of their training initially from their companies. So, you know, what does a freelancer do if they're coming right out of school and they decide, well, this is, you know, this is the path I want to do. They've got what they learned in at university, but, you know, I'm an educator and I, I realize that there's still a lot to learn. <laughs> you know, we don't teach yeah. at all. So how does that work? You know, how does onboarding work and really even training that might be needed? Yeah, a fantastic question. Again, like it's, uh, the, you know, the, the training and onboarding, I, I'd say there are two aspects to it, right? The cultural and the technical, right? Mm-hmm. So the cultural one is, we, we, there's always more we can do there. And we, I, there's, uh, we, we probably don't spend enough time uh, acclimating freelancers to how to work well in UST. Like we do have our own culture and our own quirks. And it's taken me... I'm still learning what they are, like what the best ways of getting work done at UST is. But the technical ones, um, they're a bit easier, you know, with especially if we're onboarding a freelancer to a client account. They our clients tend to have a very specific set of technologies, sometimes archaic ones, that um that are, are very that they're very structured training courses for bringing people up to speed. So uh, with a freelancer, we have a lower threshold for what, h- how much time we can expend in having them train. Uh, but there's still very, there's still a lot of sympathy there for like, understanding client-specific uh, technologies, and that's so that, yeah, that that's fairly easy to handle. But the culture side is is the tougher <laughs> one. Yeah, exactly. it, but that ta- yeah, it takes a long time, and that that's a that's a really interesting thing. And what you know, what's fascinating about it is you know not being acclimated to the culture can be really problematic uh, to getting work done, right? In organizations, because we don't we aren't in you know even though you're an independent contractor, you're you're working typically with a team or with other people to accomplish things. So. Um, that's really, that's really interesting. So I'm really curious, you know, the, we, there's a lot going on right now. Um, you know, we've got, everybody's excited about AI, a lot of changes there, a lot going on in the crypto space and in, um, a lot of opportunities in technology and this, this trend with, um, you know, the, for, um, freelance work and, so I'm just really curious, you know, the government wants to get involved in a lot of this and regulate and you're out in California. Are you in California? I, think? I am. Yes. Yeah. So, so California is kind of ground zero, I think, for <laughs> legislation, at least in the freelance space or the gig space, um, you know, yeah. and so I'm really curious, do you have any, do you have any insights on what's happening there and what's needed? What's, you know, what, what would be helpful and what, what's kind of getting in the way? Yeah, I think more than anything, it's just recognizing that freelancing is a very valid way of getting work done. So as as you alluded in California, there was a real clampdown on being able to classify anyone as an independent contractor because that comes with tax benefits and uh, 
potential um, uh, employment malpractices. Yeah, tax benefits to the companies, right? Tax benefits, yeah, to the companies. Which, right, which the which legislation was going to take away, right? Or some Precisely. And, yeah. and, and benefits for the workers as well that they, yes. they don't get as independent contractors. So I think understanding that, uh, and, and I think the, the big problem actually is in a conflation, comes in in the conflation between uh, work and law. So what I mean by that is there's there seems to be quite an artificial boundary in between independent contracting and full-time employment. But when you really drill down to it and, and understand where the origins of those two things came from, it's it's just a risk versus reward factor. In independent contractors, there's a higher risk. You can get laid off anytime you want, but you typically get paid more. And you have certain tax benefits because you're your own company, you can expense a bunch of a bunch of things. Um, whereas as a full-time employee, you get a fixed salary, you get loads of benefits. You, it's a, it's a lower risk, but lower reward for the same work. Unfortunately, and that, that's really it. It's risk versus reward. That's where, that's where the boundary lies, in my opinion. I think what's going wrong is that governments are conflating the ways in which work gets done between the ways in which people should be able to pick their risk versus reward appetite. And that it's a it's a very artificial boundary, and I, I it, that doesn't belong there. It's not a natural way to classify independent contracting versus fixed full time employment. And until until there's a way to separate the law from work, the way that work gets done, um, I don't really see an easy way for any company to navigate that political environment. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a really great way, I think, to classify. I think about the risk reward, which is, you know, that's, that's what, that's why entrepreneurship, for example, has worked. Uh, people take high risk and they get, expect a high reward. And, and, you know, sometimes they don't always get it, obviously. <laughs> that's, that's the risk uh, that they're taking. And so it's really, it, it, it changes the whole dynamic when something comes in to modify that. And, uh, but, you know, it's really fascinating too. I think I'm not in the HR space, but legislation and the laws around HR are, you know, you have to practically, I mean, many people have law degrees now that work in that space because it's mm -hmm. such a complicated space and legislation is, is playing a, a big role. And I think there's just so much going on. It's actually fascinating, I think, to look at all of this and think about what the, you know, what the, the laws, uh, you know, and what the legal environment is going to be and the political environment around all these new technologies, uh, you know, including freelance work, AI, uh, crypto, yeah. you know, this just, it's just a fascinating time right now. Oh, definitely. And no doubt the law will be 10 years behind. Uh, Always. <laughs> Uh, always and um you know it's it's uh, it's 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 going to be a challenging part i think to navigate and having companies like you that are experts in that space to help companies i'm sure could be really really helpful um excerpts not 
just in that space, but in all space, you know, everything around hiring these freelance workers. So, um, are there in on your mind in your mind are there any uh, overarching issues that um, you know that that we need to be thinking about with respect to project based work in the future? I mean, uh, everything I see it looks like it's going to be growing, and um, you know we're going to be seeing more of that. And I think there's probably a lot of opp- entrepreneurial opportunity in this space to solve some of the problems that are out there. Um, so I'm just curious if you have any, you know, any top, uh, goals or ideas in your mind of things that need to be addressed in that space. Gosh, where to start? Uh, the biggest complication in my mind is the law. So if there's if you're a, if you're an entrepreneur and you have a good way of figuring out uh if if you can figure out a way to completely obfuscate the um the complexities of the law from enterprise so if there's a way that you can handle all of the compliance issues that involve bringing a freelancer to an enterprise company then that's a billion dollar company and i would love to invest in it um Aside from that, I'd say education is another big factor. Like we, you know, that how to work. So in all management courses in top rated universities or whatever, I don't think I might be wrong, but there's nowhere where it's taught how to manage a blended workforce. How do you manage a team of full-time employees, uh, contractors, independent workers, interns? How do you, yeah. How do you how do you put them all together into one cohesive team? I, I'm not sure that's taught anywhere in any curriculum in any MBA program. So I think uh, the next generation of uh, managers, and especially middle managers, will need to will need to come through some kind of formal education with that. That's great. You know, that's really insightful. I think really insightful and and i think it's a challenge you know we i mean it's it's not just i mean it, it, it's it's not just with this uh, the kind of worker that we're talking about today you know fractional work it's it's really all remote workforces i think figuring out how to how to how to navigate the workforce of the future a lot of the management theory just doesn't fit anymore and uh i think that's really insightful so uh, this has been really interesting, Akil. I'm I'm uh, fascinated by what you do, and um, I could just talk more. Uh, and and maybe we'll have you back on here later as things evolve, because this space is really, I think, evolving and changing. And I, I I'm fascinated by what you're doing, and I think it's. Um, it, you know, you're early in your career, and I just think it's fascin- uh, just wonderful for you that you're in this space because I'm sure you're learning a lot every day, and uh, and and I've learned a lot just having this conversation. Oh, absolutely, thank you so much, Rebecca, and I appreciate your questions as well. They've really made me think. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> well, <laughs> let me ask you one last question before I let you go. If you had. Uh, and this is the one most people hate, but if you have one piece of advice for someone that, that is thinking about, um, you know, 
and you can go either way. Thinking about entering the fractional workspace, either as a worker or as a corporation, what, what would that advice be? Start by building out your network of trusted clients. Start small. And once you have evidence of your brilliance, uh, it'll be much easier for you to market yourself on, on a big platform. Yeah, that's great advice. That's that's fascinating. You know, it's it's really not different advice in a lot of ways than anybody starting out, but but I think it's really really critical and important for what for what we're talking about today. So that's that's great advice. How can our audience connect with you or find out more about what you're doing? Absolutely. Please follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, shall I kill Seth? I'm the good looking one. Um, <laughs> Happy to drop a link somewhere if that if that makes sense. But love Thank to you. anyone interested. Wonderful, and it's it's been such a such a delight, and I'm really excited to follow what you're doing and continue to see um, you know how you're building out this this exciting open talent center of excellence. So thank you for joining me today, and uh, and I look forward to to continuing to to be in touch with you. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Really appreciate this. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor.